We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos, and today my guest is Tommy Forslund. Tommy's research concerns parenting among parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities, child development, influential factors, and parenting support. We started our conversation by talking about his PhD project on the impact of trauma and abuse on attachment. Enjoy, and don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. It's been a big project in, in a sense that it took a lot of time to recruit the families. And we're still sort of working on, on publishing more papers from that project. We ended up with 26 mothers with mild intellectual disability and their children. The children were between five and eight years of age. And that, that was uh, mostly because of the, uh, the attachment measure for the, for the children being validated for around that age span. And also recruitment-wise, uh, some, some other scholars have, have been emphasizing that when it comes to direct research on these families, there's been very scarce research using uh, good comparison groups that sometimes mothers with mild intellectual disability have been compared with sort of mothers from, uh, from the middle class who have stable partners, good economy and uh, well-developed social support and so forth. So we tried our best to sort of create a matched comparison group, uh, finding mothers from similarly impoverished neighborhoods uh, who had roughly the same income and uh, children of the same age as the mothers with intellectual disability. Uh, so that also took, took quite a long time to get that matched comparison group. Um, around the time when we published our first paper, um, colleagues of ours uh, published a paper where they had been sort of reviewing care assessments concerning mothers with intellectual disability and their children. And in virtually all these cases, they found uh, the professionals in their reports uh, raised concern about child attachment quality and the mother's caregiver sensitivity. So I do believe that, that this project has some important knowledge to offer about that. Uh, what we did then, uh, we had two visits. First, we met just the mothers in their homes, if they were okay with that, or in a neutral place, uh, such as their habilitation center, so that they would feel comfortable. Uh, and then we got some background information, and we also conducted a thorough interview for abuse, trauma, and maltreatment uh, that they themselves had experienced in their lives. We were inspired by a study by McGaw, uh, who found very high sort of rates for having experienced uh, abuse among mothers with intellectual disability. And we know from lots of other research that such experiences can have detrimental effects on caregiving and child development. So 
taking into account uh, Feldman and others work also sort of emphasizing that we must also look at contextual variables and not just sort of zoom in on the intellectual disability per se. So in the first visit, we interviewed them about their experiences of, of trauma, abuse and maltreatment and got some background information. And then at, in a second visit, typically within two weeks, the mother and her child came to us in the lab and they then got to sort of interact and play together in a semi-structured uh, observational protocol that we recorded for caregiver sensitivity. We used four different uh, episodes of free play with toys, without toys, uh, collaborating and cooperating on an etch-a-sketch and drawing together. And then sort of in, in trying to mimic um, everyday life situations, we gave the mothers a task of their own, a simple questionnaire. And we also gave the children um, an overly challenging toy so that they would come to their mothers for help and, and attention to see how would the mothers deal with that, similar to having to do the dishes or cook while the kids also sort of signal and have needs. And after that, mother and child were separated for like 40 minutes or to an hour so that we could gather information about both maternal and child intelligence. And we also did um, the separation anxiety uh, test for the children to, to get some information about their attachment quality. And this project has thus far produced three papers uh, that I've been part of co-authoring, and I'm about to submit a fourth paper uh, from from this project. The study you're alluding to uh, that, that you're talking about, Marjorie, the first one, that one focused on child attachment and also then uh, how much abuse, trauma, maltreatment the parents, uh, the mothers had experienced and how that related to the children's attachment quality. In brief, we found that Secure attachment do exist among these children, about 35%, if I don't misrecall, uh, were securely attached. And even some children were even prototypically secure in their, in their attachment. So I think that in of itself is important that we, can, that we can say that secure attachment do exist in this group. 35% is a bit lower than in general population. So that, that does indicate sort of a risk for insecure attachment at the same time. And it was a marginally significant um, difference between the children to the mothers with mild intellectual disability and the comparison group children. But a major finding was that maternal intelligence didn't predict anything, but how much abuse, trauma and maltreatment the mothers had been subjected to emerged as a significant predictor. Uh, in the sense that, um, first of all, the mothers with mild intellectual disability had experienced an awful lot of abuse, trauma, and maltreatment, both during their childhoods and in adulthood. It was a notable effect size uh, so that these mothers had experienced much more such experiences than the comparison mothers. And the more trauma they had experienced, the greater the likelihood of insecure child attachment. So that first study really emphasized also that these mothers are at risk for, for trauma and that can have a detrimental effect that potentially on caregiving and that, that sort of can also influence their children's development when it comes to attachment. The second study focused on the mother's sensitivity by Lindberg and colleagues. And uh, 
again, we found heterogeneity just as for attachment. Um, like you can't sort of say that they're all the same. It's not a homogenous group. Some mothers with intellectual disability uh, exhibited fairly high maternal sensitivity. It was lots of variation, but similar to the first study, uh, looking at them as a group, their sensitivity was lower than the comparison mothers. But again, similar to the first study, maternal intelligence was not associated with caregiver sensitivity, whereas abuse, trauma, and maltreatment was. The more abuse, trauma, and maltreatment they had been exposed to, the greater uh, the risk of low maternal sensitivity. And then I have a, an excellent colleague, he's a psychologist and he's doing his uh, PhD uh, work for Professor Per Granqvist and me. When he started, he was really interested in trauma. And while we were collecting new data, so, uh, I, together with him, we analyzed uh, another task that, from that project um, about the mother's ability to interpret and identify facial emotional expressions um, among children, infants specifically, using a booklet with, I think it's 40 uh, photographs of, of infants showing uh, emotional expressions. Again, the same pattern emerged that, that the more trauma uh, the mothers with intellectual disability had been subjected to, the greater the odds of problems they had a risk of sort of biases in attributing shame to infants' facial expressions. And um, that has generally typically only been found among severely traumatized parents in general, who perhaps feel shame themselves. And, and that sort of translates to how they process emotional expressions from others. Currently, I'm trying to wrap up uh, a fourth paper, sort of focusing then on to close this uh, project, uh, uh, looking into these previous results, to what extent does it translate to child development in terms of problems with anger, anxiety, psychosomatic problems, uh, hyperactivity. And uh, I'm about to, to submit that paper. And there is a difference so that the children to the mothers with intellectual disability uh, are rated by their mothers as showing higher levels of behavior problems. And caregiver sensitivity is, again, uh, related to child behavior problems. In fact, controlling for caregiver sensitivity erases the group differences in child behavior problems. So that those analyses kind of suggest that maternal sensitivity may be contributing to the children's development. But then again, uh, it's important to remember that once more, uh, maternal experiences of abuse, trauma, and maltreatment was also a predictor of behavior problems among the children. So once more, we see this complex pattern where contextual factors such as maternal exposure to abuse, trauma, and maltreatment may influence children's development um, in perhaps, uh, perhaps through the mother's caregiving behavior. So we're trying to wrap up this project that has robustly emphasize the importance of not just looking at the mother's intellectual disability, but also taking into account contextual factors uh, and the importance of preventing exposure to abuse. How can we as professionals identify this and how can we provide treatment when needed? Yeah. 
you said exactly what I was going to to go with that in terms of, you know, it really tells us about what is needed. And we know from also an array of different articles and research in the field that persons with intellectual disabilities or persons with disabilities face you know, more trauma and more abuse than, than in the general population. And so, you know, this is something that we need to sort of tackle because when these persons become parents, then from your research, what it does is that it, it can have an impact on children. And we see that also in terms of intergenerational trauma that we talk about, you know, in First Nations, for example, population in, in the US, Canada and Australia, and we've seen that in other sort of, um, you know, cultures uh, as well, in terms of, you know, passing down the trauma to the younger generations. And so that's why I, I think that, you know, this, this type of work was definitely needed. It also teaches me as uh, a professional and as a researcher that when we conduct really robust research, like uh, you and your colleagues have done, we end up with results that really allow us to make a difference and to understand what is happening. And so I thank you for, for having done and being part of that research and for continuing to look at attachment in parents with intellectual disabilities or in their children who have parents with intellectual disabilities. Because I think it's, it's a field that is very important and, and can lead us to understanding better what our role might be as professionals and clinicians. Thank you. Um, we're currently conducting a new project where we're uh, studying the mother's uh, attachment representations. We're using a gold standard uh, method called the adult attachment interview. And uh, we have met 40 mothers with intellectual disability and uh, roughly the same number of mothers with ADHD as a comparison group. Because one specific type of insecure attachment is called disorganized attachment and among adults uh, then then you talk about unresolved states uh, states of mind and given that's specifically related to abuse trauma and maltreatment so given our previous results and those of others um, we have a hypothesis that there's there's a notable risk of unresolved states of mind among the mothers themselves so we're looking into that and also, of course, in relation to some other measures of mentalization and caregiving and uh, child development, hoping that that these findings can sort of maybe attest to the importance of psychological treatment for these mothers in order to help them, uh, but also uh, for their children's sake. Yeah, it's um, you talk about treatments and that made me think also when you were talking about the previous research when you were talking about um, sensitivity, you know, and being able to um, to notice or understand or see what their children's needs are, you know, there are some interventions that do exist um, specifically for parents with intellectual disabilities that have proven that when you apply sort of that intervention, sensitivity increases. So I think that there's, you know, it teaches us where where we need to work on or, you know, what are the things or the elements that we need to check as professionals, but it also know from a larger body of research that we can do something about it and we could sort of work on, on that and that's, uh, that's possible. So I thank you for, for you know, making it clear because 
you know, working in attachment, uh, sometimes it could be very complex in terms of understanding those concepts. So thank you for making it sort of clear. Now, as you know, as everybody know, we have been sort of in pandemic mode for the last couple of years. And during that time, you had an idea to, to talk with parents with intellectual disabilities about their experience during COVID. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that uh, research? Sure. So I interviewed 10 um, parents with intellectual disability. I was hoping for roughly the same number of uh, mothers and fathers, but we ended up with nine mothers and, and one father with intellectual disability. And uh, we used an, a manual for the interviews um, based on uh, lots of research on, on these families. And we ended up with 20 questions in three different sections. The first section um, uh, asked about about potential effects on the mothers themselves, uh, psychological well-being and uh, social contacts with uh, friends and family, work, economy, finances, uh, participation, uh, being able to be included in society and go to different places, all of that. And the second section concerned effects on the children, because, I mean, viewing caregiving in context also needs to include sort of how do the children fare? Children can be variously easy or difficult depending on how they're faring. And then we asked about, uh, I asked about effects on parent-child interactions um, during the COVID pandemic. Humbly sort of stating that like the pandemic may have influenced you or uh, your child, making it uh, more difficult or easier to be a parent. We also asked about potential positive effects of the pandemic. And what we ended up with was then 10 long interviews. They were, I think, on average, uh, more than an hour long. And we analyzed this uh, using qualitative analysis, thematic analysis. My colleagues are good with that. Um, so we analyzed them that way, and we did find some concerning results. We summarized the results as pointing towards uh, increased caregiving demands and reduced uh, resources for coping, resulting in strains on the parent-child interactions and relationships. And then, then we address four specific uh, themes under that that we found. And the first one was uh, information. I think all 10 parents had been very concerned in the beginning of the pandemic and and had difficulties understanding governmental information and what was being said on the general news, which made them even more sort of afraid. And um, But then there was a difference. Some of these parents got help um, from friends and family or professionals to acquire sort of a nuanced understanding of the pandemic, the do's and don'ts and the restrictions. And uh, those parents tended to fare relatively well together with, the, with their kids in comparison. Like they were able to sort of uh, redirect their attention and substitute uh, activities that they used to do with their children. Like, okay, so we can't do this, but given the restrictions, perhaps we can do this instead. Whereas some of the parents, they had prolonged continuous difficulties understanding the restrictions and the pandemic. They didn't get any help. They didn't get any any adapted information. And it was clear from those interviews that these parents had difficulties sort of navigating the pandemic for their own sake and for their children. 
they tended to become more uh, isolated and uh, being sort of confined to their apartment. And they had difficulties finding new activities to do with their children. So we're really emphasizing the importance of adapted information. Um, the government here in Sweden has been criticized for taking months to, to make adapted information accessible. As a second theme, we emphasize effects on social relationships and informal support. Um, lots of these uh, caregivers, they talked about how they used to get support from friends and family, but due to the pandemic, they could no longer receive this help. And they also missed friends and family, and it took a toll on their well-being. So sort of uh, reducing their own resources by, by affecting their well-being and also then getting less help. Uh, as a third theme, there was a notable reduction in professional support. During the beginning of the pandemic, you couldn't have professionals in your home like you used to. And uh, I think one of the participants said it well when she said that, when I have my support, then I then I sort of blossom and I and I function really well. But now I'm like a wilted rose. That that sort of not be not being allowed to have that support that she needs and, and that she were used to really took sort of a toll on her. And the parents talked about chaos emerging and it was difficult to manage household tasks and get energy over for their for their children. Uh, so that was also a notable influence. And as a fourth and final theme, we're emphasizing difficulties interacting with children's schools. The schools didn't use adapted information. They sent out tons of information. And sometimes the parents didn't know from one day to the other if the children should come to school or if they should have distance education. And naturally having an intellectual disability can make it more difficult to sort of help your child with schoolwork. But now during the pandemic, suddenly they were expected to help their children with, with their schoolwork. One parent even talked about how, how the social services, instead of sort of helping her and talking to her about how can we make schoolwork uh, function, um, then the school called the social services instead, suspecting the, the mother of, uh, of neglecting her child. So kind of that interaction didn't didn't work well, and uh, in line with previous research um, concerning these families, interacting with children's schools were really difficult for the parents. And so, in some, the caregiving demands really increased because the children uh, were heavily affected. They couldn't meet their peers um, and family. Um, their activities were cancelled and there were lots of changes for the children and some of them had disabilities themselves and were affected, sort of creating extra demands on the parents with intellectual disability to manage this. And I think our findings sort of extend that to parents with intellectual disability who were left more alone, had less support and an increased uh, sort of uh, caregiving burden to deal with. One mother actually um, felt so she was she was influenced so much by the, by the pandemic so that eventually, and I think this is kind of impressive because uh, she really sort of had her children's best interest uh, closest to heart. Eventually, she felt compelled 
to place her children in out-of-home care because she didn't get the, the support that she was used to. And she was really, really fighting for her children, but she didn't get adapted information. And she, she started searching and searching more on the internet for information, which just freaked her out more. She talked about watching things on TV, like how, how they were sort of barring uh, doors in, in some countries. And she was, uh, she, she saw soldiers on TV and she was like, is that gonna happen here? Will there be soldiers on the streets? What's happening? Eventually all these fears influenced her um, to the extent that, that she felt like she couldn't fulfill her caregiving uh, in a sufficient way and felt she had to place her children out of home care. And I, I think that sort of attests to a failure from the society to support this family. It attests to that. It also attests to the love that this mom has, just like you mentioned, you know, how hard it must have been for her to sort of, you know, admit that um, she didn't feel equipped or supported well enough to be able to do that. And the best interest for her children was that they receive the caregiving from somebody else. That's a pretty big decision to take as a parent. Yeah. And I think very few parents make that, de that decision themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was listening to you talk about COVID. And one, I, I really want to thank you for for bringing their voice during COVID, because I think that there was a lot of research done during the last two years on the general population. Yours, to my knowledge, is the only one who really looked at parents with intellectual disabilities, bringing sort of voice or an image and illustration uh, snapshot of what it is or was for them. But when we look at sort of, you know, in the general population and this population, the stress, the, the lack of resources, the lack of information. I think we all live that and we all sort of struggle at one point or another. The difference maybe for parents with intellectual disability is that they require sort of that additional adaptation so that they could understand what the information means and what impact it can have on their lives. And yeah. because that resource or that help wasn't there, then we put these parents and these families in jeopardy. Uh, and I say we because I think it's a responsibility from society to be able to provide information to everybody so that everybody can understand. There is something that I would like for us to speak about. I understand that it's not your research, but you work also as a clinician in a country that has established sort of a national strategy to some extent called PYC, Parenting Young Children. So I would love for you to sort of briefly tell us what that program is and what you know of, you know, some of the results of putting this program in place had on parents and workers. Sure. PYC stands for Parenting Young Children. It's a caregiving intervention that comes from Australia. And then my colleagues here at SUF Resource Center uh, in Uppsala, uh, quite a few years back, um, together with other researchers and practitioners in Sweden, in a consortium, um, they brought the PYC here to Sweden, translated it, and have sort of uh, used it quite a bit here in Sweden now. Because as you say, we do have a, a national uh, strategy in Sweden that 
we should be able to support all parents in their caregiving. The PYC is based on evidence-based cognitive support. Uh, it is also home-based so that you're helping the parents practice various skills in the environment where it is mostly to be used. There's like two dimensions to it. One dimension emphasizing uh, sort of uh, protection and security and uh, basic child care. And then there's a second dimension emphasizing caregiver sensitivity and uh, those aspects of interacting with your child. And there, there's been one big former project led by Michaela Starke um, involving quite a few sites in Sweden. It seems to have the, the benefit of, of being an, an instrument um, for the professionals that, that can help guide their work. Because one aspect is that um, you're breaking down. I think this is inspired by Feldman's work on step by step. Um, so you're, use, you're using cognitive support and aids for like creating, uh, creating sort of schemes and what order to do certain things and practicing that with the parents. And you're also together with the parent who you set goals. What should we work with? You're not just coming from the outside and, 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 say, and telling the parents that you need to work on this. So you're actually inviting the parent into the process. Like, what do you want to have help with? Uh, what do you think uh, would be good to improve on? And so there's indications that, that the parents tend to find it, uh, that it helps their motivation. They get to be part of it and it helps them with a therapeutic alliance. Uh, so that, that seems to be a good thing too. And also the um, the cognitive support that you're using and adapting for each and every parent based on what are what are we working with here and after setting goals you can you can make observations and then you're practicing with the parent and then you're evaluating to see to what extent have we succeeded in sort of developing this skill and in in like a, a circle and you keep going like that and then setting new goals and targets and so you tend to want to have a long contact for this and you perhaps you want to meet like twice a week and over over a year um so there's lots of indications that it's a that it's a constructive and positive positive way of helping these parents in a way that is sort of adapted and and meets their cognitive needs yes like you said it's you know built from from other programs that also have shown efficacy and positive results for for caregiving so i thank you for explaining that to us now i'll move on to the the next step which is you know a lot of things are happening in sweden obviously in the last i would say at least 10 years if, uh, even more what do you think would be next in terms of research but maybe also in terms of clinical practice if you had an idea I have lots of things that I'd like to see being done. Uh, we all have, I guess. Um, one thing that is close to heart for me is how can we sort of take the knowledge on the high risk of abuse, trauma, and maltreatment um, to another sort of practical, uh, useful level. I've spoken to quite a few parents and professionals now who say that it's difficult to sort of um, to get these parents trauma-focused treatment, to some extent, uh, psychological treatment in general, because in Sweden, habilitation tends to want to focus on the 
on the cognitive difficulties. That's their area, the, the disability and how can we help them with inclusion and, and, and so forth. Whereas psychiatry, they can often say that, well, we can't do this. This should be, this should be something for the habilitation. So they end up sort of falling in between and, and they get no help, some of them. The mother that I mentioned earlier, uh, who placed her children in out-of-home care during uh, the COVID pandemic, um, she fought to get uh, trauma-focused treatment because such things had also influenced her. And when I, when I meet a parent, I always tend to take uh, a lot of time so that we're not in any rush and we can talk about other things too. And it turned out that she had no idea about PTSD, uh, the existence of PTSD. And, and she was like, this fits so well. But she had to fight to get like an assessment for, for that and then, and then eventually get treatment for it. And it's been really heartwarming to follow her. And she keeps telling me how much better she's feeling now due to this uh, treatment that she now, has now eventually gotten. And the social services also see lots of improvement and uh, they, they really push for her taking her kids back uh, and having them back at her home. And, but she's, I think she's wise. She's like, I don't want to rush to this. I, I want to feel stable and work on myself and then gradually sort of increase uh, the contact uh, to get to that state of having the children full-time living at home. So I know there is some research on trauma-focused therapy for persons with intellectual disability, but I haven't really seen any research on trauma-focused interventions for, for parents with intellectual disability. And I, that would be a dream project, I think, to see if we can give these parents trauma uh, treatment for their traumatic experiences, to what extent does that translate to and sort of help them with their caregiving and help child development? That's one thing that I would really like to do eventually. And I think it would require substantial funding uh, to be able to sort of help habilitation and psychiatry to set aside resources to, to sort of collaborate on this and, and make it happen. But that's something that I, that I mean to do. So many, so many different things eh, that we could do uh, if we had, you know, a lot of money and a lot of time. And sometimes we have to, to check. I yeah. really want to thank you because this is like amazing in terms of a wealth of information from research and then from clinical. I will ask you now the last question, which is if you could speak to child welfare professionals right now, what is the one thing you would like them to remember or to focus on? Um, that would be heterogeneity, uh, not sort of assuming that parents with intellectual disability are incapable of uh, being a good enough caregiver. I mean, there's still research coming out uh, showing, suggesting that professionals and laypersons still sort of have these stereotypic views that parents with ID are. Uh, incapable due to inter the intellectual disability per se. So heterogeneity, like our research and lots of research from, from other scholars around the world have continuously emphasized heterogeneity. Like we found that some mothers with ID were fairly high in sensitivity. We also found that some of their children were securely attached, even prototypically secure, uh, securely attached. And some of these mothers had not been subjected to, to abuse, trauma, and maltreatment either. So kind of, there's lots of variation. So I would like practitioners to remember that. And also 
to remember that caregiving and child development is influenced by so many different factors, not just assuming that it's about the, the caregiver's intellectual disability, but like abuse, trauma, maltreatment, social support, access to professional support, for example, which can be difficult sometimes that, that, it's too, that support is too inaccessible and perhaps also um, leading to some pessimism concerning the parents and children's prospects. And so remember sort of that the multifactorial nature of this, that there's so many things we could help these families with as well. How can we sort of help them with social support, with all their contacts? Often their children can have disabilities of, of their own and not just assuming that the child's development is about caregiving, but may, maybe they need help with sort of a, a referral so that, the, so that the child can get an assessment and, and perhaps sort of interventions to help the child's development that way. And how can we make it easier for these families with all their contacts with the social services, with habilitation, psychiatry? Uh, schools, like how can we simplify things for them? I think that's an awesome way to end the the podcast. And I really want to thank you for for the time that you took to talk with me and to share all of your knowledge. I can't wait to see what you're going to be doing in the next little while. So thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Marjorie. And thank you for interviewing me. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.